Hello, listeners. At the mobility conference CoMotion LA, in a jam-packed room filled with 400-plus attendees who share an interest in the future of mobility, one of the panel moderators asked a polling question to the audience. Who would you trust the most with your personal data? After 25 seconds or so, and with the audience voting from their smartphones, the results came in. In third place, the entity who the audience would trust with their personal data was a startup mobility company. In second place was a traditional transportation provider. I presume this would be a legacy automaker or airline industry. And in first place, and with an overwhelming vote of confidence by the audience, the entity they would trust with their personal data was local or government authority. To me, this was shocking. I did not think that so many people would trust local or government authority with their personal data. And to be fair, it's not like I trust a lot of private companies with my data either. But local and government authorities have been known to make money off data like private companies. It's been reported from Vice Media that the California DMV rakes in $50 million annually from commercial requesters like LexisNexis and Experian. In episode 106, I wanted to take a consultative approach to understand how local and government authorities think about regulation of new mobility services, with special attention given to the data disagreement between LADOT and Uber's Jump. What better way to understand this territorial fight than to have mechanical engineer and the managing director of the future of mobility from Deloitte, Mr. Rashik Zarif, share his insights. So stay tuned. Before we get to today's episode, listeners, don't forget. If you have a recommended book for 2020, please share with us. One book from Amy in San Francisco recommends is Policing the Open Road. And listeners, I have to tell you, I jumped on this book and bought it immediately and started reading it. And it combines two of my longtime interests, one being automotive and the other being Fourth Amendment rights. So if you have a book worth sharing, please send your recommendations to bookpod at wiscoweeklypod.com. We'll collate all the books and we'll send back to you as your reading list for 2020. Again, send an email to bookpod at wiscoweeklypod.com and share your book with us. Visit the episode page to learn more about this. Now, let's get into the show. You are now tuned in to the Wisco Weekly Experience. Mabuhai, bienvenidos, vitaite, willkommen, and welcome to Wisco Weekly. Listeners, thanks for tuning in to another episode. This is the podcast that is exploring the new business models for the mobility of people and goods. I'm your host, Dennis Wisco. 
And we are recording at the LA Convention Center at the opening of, well, I guess the LA Auto Show opens tomorrow. We're at Automobility LA, another mobility con or mobility conference. And on a day like this, and with the guests that I have today, I think one of the things that I'm very, very intrigued about and in wanting to ensure that public sector and private sector work together more cohesively is really exploring P3s, public-private partnerships. And I can go back to when I first started a job when I was working at UC Irvine and I was in the sports marketing department, I was constantly involved in partnership making. If that was with the sports marketing department, uh, within the UCI athletic, UCI athletic department and trying to foster relationships with student government or the alumni association, or if it was actually pursuing business to business sponsorships or partnerships where I would, per, I would solicit a, a company and ask them to provide their sponsorship dollars, their product, their services, and have them integrated into the UCI athletic system. One of the things that certainly is very different when you do a business to business partnership versus a public private partnership is time. I, it's, it's very hard to find any kind of private partnership that really takes you to a 30 year, a 40 year, a 50 year timeline. And I think that is one of the things that I'm hoping we can start to reevaluate and relook at uh, when it comes to public-private partnerships. And today's guest is certainly going to be shedding some perspective on how these partnerships can be better suited. My guest serves as the lead for the tech practice for the future of mobility at Deloitte. He is responsible for further, further advancing and commercializing the firm's growth in shared and autonomous mobility, connecting ecosystem leaders in technology, te telecommunications, and automotive sectors. Prior to joining Deloitte, my guest served in a variety of leadership roles at Mercedes-Benz for almost 15 years. He has driven future product strategy, technology development, and piloted new technologies. Most recently, he served as the head of Lab 1886 USA, which is an incubator for the Mercedes-Benz brand based in Silicon Valley. My guest frequently presents at global mo mobility industry events, including Smart Cities Council, Consumer Electronics Show, and South by Southwest. He earned his Master's of Science degree in Mechanical Engineering from the University of California, Berkeley, and he obtained his Bachelor's degree in Mechanical Engineering, and he minored in Economics from Columbia University. Men, women, and children, please welcome to the show, Mr. Rashik Zarif. Well, Dennis, thank you so much for that great introduction there. I'm actually impressed with myself now. <laughs> Have you met yourself? <laughs> Only at the mirror. <laughs> well, thank you, sir, for, for being on the show. I really appreciate it. Um, you have... You have a background that's very interesting personally to me. I won't go into it too deep, but I, I, because you have a mechanical engineering background, because you have worked at an automaker, and because we'll talk about this paper that you helped co-author, you certainly do have the best mindset that I'm hoping will foster greater cooperation between public and private sectors. 
Uh, before we actually get to that, if you can, please share with our listeners, how can people follow you? I mean, the, the future of mobility site at Deloitte is, is very easily, easily accessible. So it's uh, Deloitte.com future of mobility. Uh, personally, I have a Twitter handle at uh, Rashik. It's pretty straightforward there, uh, as well as uh, catching me on LinkedIn. Great. And listeners, I will add his contact information on the episode page. Okay, so Rashik, you co-authored a paper uh, at Deloitte and in the future of mobility called Small is Beautiful. That is correct. Coincidentally, that is a term of endearment that my wife uses with me. <laughs> it's because I'm short. What are you thinking? I'm, I just, you're short. Yes. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so it's it's entitled Small is Beautiful, Making Micromobility Work for Citizens, Cities, and Service Providers. Um, in this in this white paper, you have prescribed four recommendations on how cities can better work with micromobility providers. First is adaptive regulation. The second is regulatory sandboxes. The third is outcome-based regulation. And the fourth is risk-weighted regulation. Can you maybe share with us a little bit about these four recommendations? Yeah, maybe I'll take it a step, a step back a bit and talk about why we wrote the paper. I think it's important for the viewers to understand that um, when, you know, I have a quite extensive background, although I'm, I'm in automotive or was in automotive and uh, focused a lot on product strategy. Uh, during the time when I was at Lab 86, 1886 and before when it was called Business Innovation, really tried to develop a lot around defining mobility solutions for the automotive manufacturer. And in, during that time, I learned that it's not about just developing these private offerings for consumers. It was how do you interact with government agencies? And that was really the first time I got a lot of exposure to um, the government's role and importance um, in transportation and um, in how you develop. And as you mentioned earlier, the discussion about partnerships and specifically public private partnerships. When scooters came out, you know, about two years ago, it really disrupted the, the landscape because of the fact that at that time, you know, the, the saturation of people with smartphones is pretty, pretty uh, high. Mm -hmm. And the ease of access to these vehicles, um, these assets with, you know, just a dollar to start and what have you um, made it really just explode. Mm -hmm. um, and it really put cities in a in a unique situation of uh, of all this change that's happening in a short amount of time. And these scooters are all of a sudden coming out of nowhere. Um, there were various reactions that happened. I think it's important to recognize that some cities try to figure out how to embrace it. Some immediately just started putting bans in place in order to determine, you know, what to do. Um, but also acknowledging that the reaction time that cities came to um, defining potential policy approaches was a lot faster due to the lessons learned from the right hailing days. Um, when Explain, you, yeah, when you think about, you know, when Uber and Lyft came about, you know, almost a decade ago, it took a very long time for cities to figure out how to adapt in that in that mindset. Um, but through a lot of those lessons learned, um, I think cities have done a fantastic job. Um, and when I say cities, I'm, I'm generalizing with cities, municipalities, regional agencies, authorities, agencies, mm -hmm. and so forth, because it varies. I mean, depending on where you are, whether it's county authorities and so forth, um, they've done a fantastic job in, in um, putting the necessary policies in place um, learning and putting pilots in place and trying to work in collaboration with the mobility companies. And the same with them too. I mean, they've done a great job in trying to collaborate. And the recommendations that we've outlined were recommendations based off of 
discussions with both city officials as well as you know private mobility companies and it, we've defined those four as as approaches and it's not a one-size-fits-all but it's an approach to consider as you figure out what is right for your city because it's not a one-size-fits-all solution um, maybe share with us a little bit more when you talk about adaptive regulation can you maybe share what that means exactly yeah adaptive regulation is more of you set an initial hypothesis and you say okay this is what we think we need let's put the regulations in place let's capture some data and then let's reassess after a year time for example like a certain amount of time and that puts the position on the city or the authority to make decisions um, for adapt adaption of the regulations at a, after that point in time um, versus putting you know traditional policies where it's you know 50 to 100 years in place yeah um, and I think that's necessary because you know, scooters are not going to be the last things that come into market um, between now and the next five years. There are going to be other things that come in place. And that actually reminds me of, I mean, you're going to hear me talk about this a lot because this is, I, I want to understand these recommendations in the context of what's going on in today's society with, with mobility and some of the issues that are going on in this mobility revolution. And that would lead me to uh, the confrontation between LADOT and Jump and Uber and LADOT's uh, dockless permit program and how Jump is not adhering to it. But like you said, the what LADOT is doing is kind of exactly what you have just said. They want to be able to collect information, work with these mobility providers in this pilot program for about a year to see how things work and how things function. Fair? That's fair. Okay. How about regulatory sandboxes? If you could please uh, share with us, what is regulatory sandboxes? Yeah, I think regulatory sandboxes where you, in a city context, you will work with different mobility providers and give each one different regulatory constraints and see which one performs the best. So you give company X the ability of having, say, try it for three to six months and you have a cap of 100 scooters. And another one being like, okay, try for six months and only focus on one part of the city and see how that will look like. And based on, on that data and feedback, then you are able to determine what is the right approach. That's very different from the adaptive regulation because you're setting the regulation in place that everyone needs to adhere to. Here, you're providing different regulations for different companies to be able to determine what's the best course of action moving forth for all of them. Interesting, because on one hand, like again, that almost seems as if that is exactly what LADOT is doing. However, the fact that LED puts a cap on how many scooters or micro mobility devices can be deployed would also kind of be counterintuitive to free market capitalism. And essentially, rather than putting a cap, you, you put out as many scooters based on the need based on the market. Yeah, I think, you know, when you look at that, there, there are pros and cons to doing it. And that's why we provide the different perspectives. Um, you might be in, an, in a region where you don't want to put as many scooters as possible or have it the market flooded because it doesn't necessarily prove to be viable for the mobility company and, and it actually might cause an, an adverse effect. Uh, so a cap is necessary to put some limitations and determine in a sense of if you have one constant, what are the other variables that shift as a result? So think of this like all these four uh, different approaches as science experiments, really. You have your hypothesis. Oh, you're speaking to my heart. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it goes back to my mechanical engineering days, oh, you know, and, and in the sense of like in mechanical engineering, you do a lot of like development of systems. And, and so how do you how do you prove out your hypotheses and defining things unless you put one thing constant 
and you see the other things that are variable. It's a little bit of trial and error, but sure, right. you, you build from that. And I think this is where, when you think about systems and all the different mobility options that are coming into a city system, um, why um, these types of experiments are necessary. Yeah, and it reminds me too uh, of just running digital marketing campaigns too. I mean, you, you want to run multiples of them so you know which, you know, what constants are actually successful and then testing those constants against variables so that you have a full picture of how your digital advertising campaign works. Uh, let's go to the third recommendation, outcome-based regulation. Yeah, so on outcome-based regulation, you, you have a higher goal set. So for example, if you're going to say, I want to reduce uh, vehicle miles traveled or I want to, you know, reduce CO2 output or maybe increase accessibility to a certain region of the city to provide uh, mobility for those that are maybe not have as much accessibility to it. If you set that as a high level performance metric and you then provide that to the mobility company to be able to achieve that, um, that that is a different approach and saying, okay, based off of that, we will give you the flexibility that you need to do to grow your business in the region. So it's it's really tying it back to not necessarily focusing on, you know, the intricacies of how you work in a city, but more on it does it actually make an impact to an overall city's objective. How does one reconcile where this outcome based regulation that I would say a micro mobility provider will say, well, an outcome that we would want is greater engagement with our particular scooter. I, how does private and public reconcile the different outcomes that they want? Through a lot of negotiations. <laughs> <laughs> I guess that's what it boils um, down I to. I mean, that's what it boils down to. Um, there's a lot of, um, there are nonprofit organizations that work to try to mediate that between the bo both sides of the, the aisle there. Um, but I think everyone, at the end of the day has the same objective in mind is reducing the number of vehicles on the road and providing more accessibility to transportation for people to get to A to B. Um, and, and I think that as long as that is the, the end goal, minutia parts of it will be figured out. And I, and I think that's where we kind of get to with the outcome-based regulations. And um, certainly the, the minutia is, you know, I don't want that to be glossed over because the devil is in the details. Absolutely. And I think that is one of the things that is being fought with LADOT and Jump, um, specifically when it comes down to the sharing of data. Um, I, I've had a chance to really go through this permit program LADOT has uh, outlined and essentially what are some of the concerns of Jump as well as the Center for Democracy and Technology. So. Uh, we'll get into we'll get into that in a little bit here, but okay. So the fourth uh, recommendation, Rashik, is risk weighted regulation. Risk weighted regulation. Please explain. Yeah, I think on, on that standpoint, it is the the aspect of setting a regulation doesn't necessarily work uh, throughout a city evenly. So, for example, if you have an area where uh, bike lane does not exist, um, shifting the regulation to allow a user to maybe use a sidewalk um, or um, or if a sidewalk does not exist, how do you define regulation and reducing speed limits in the area uh, to reduce the, the risk from a safety standpoint to the individual? I think this is an important one when you look at um, providing mobility services in areas of suburbs where you don't necessarily have the right infrastructure being put in versus say in an urban city environment. 
you touched upon something that this permit program is going to affect not just the not just the main urban areas such as downtown LA, but it's going to touch across all of LA County. And even as you get into cities, uh, I don't know if you're so familiar with some of the cities down here, but you know, if you start to go further out east, um, Claremont, Pasadena, uh, La Cunada, you know, some of these areas that if you do have a scooter in that area, then they are going to have to be part of this LAD DOT program, which then you will have uh, a lot of the users of these of these scooters and, and bikes. All of that information adheres to the to the permit program. Per the permit program, data will be shared to the city or to LADOT and as well as to the micro mobility provider. I'm curious to see how that will how suburbanites and I would consider myself one how that will be received when knowing the fact that you do have these devices that were really designed uh, or the collection let's say of data was really designed more for downtown LA so that that particular corridor can be managed properly to minimize congestion but now because of LA County because it's so huge and and sprawling you are going to have other cities that are 40 minutes away that will be affected when users do use one of those micro mobility uh, devices. Are you talking about uh, with respect to the concerns that data is being captured across LA County versus just focusing on the city? Yes. Yeah, I, I think um, when going back with my my uh, engineering hat on, having a broader set of data does help you to kind of give a better picture on how your county runs versus mm. specifically in the city. I mean, when you think about how many people are in downtown Los Angeles every day, they come from somewhere. They're not all living in downtown Los Angeles. Um, so understanding how people move or connect to different modes of transportation to get there and back, whether it's ignoring vehicles or scooters or connecting to public transit, um, is important to, to be able to develop the right policies to determine how to move forth in providing better mobility for the entire county. Um, that is something that is a challenge across the U.S. when you have different authorities, uh, transportation authorities, regional authorities that have to work together to be able to provide the connection points. Because from a citizen standpoint, you know, going from Pasadena to downtown Los Angeles on a highway or using mass transit, to them it's all one, one service. Right. It's all one road, one service. They, they, they pay taxes to this to the state, to the city. They don't know and they don't care about which authority controls from highway, you know, mile marker one to mile marker five. And then there's a next authority. So I think that is the complexity that even like putting the private transportation networks aside for a moment where cities are you know trying to grasp on. How do they work together? I, I th that you're, that's such a great point. I mean, you're absolutely right that at the end of the day, the the folks in the suburbs, they don't they don't see a lot of the minutia in these transportation providers. They just see it as okay, what is the vehicle that's going to take me from point A to point B? Um, if anything, the the wool may be pulled over their eyes when they realize at some point that, let's just say, after this pilot program is is adopted widespread. And and I guess let's be clear, I almost don't see another way around it. I, I think this 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 pilot program will turn into policy. 
This reminds me of other policies that a lot of states have already introduced, and that is the certificate of need. Have you heard of this? No, I'm not Con aware law? of it. No. So, certificate of need is a is a permit uh, process or program that addresses solutions in the healthcare industry. I think at a federal level, this was passed back in the 70s and it was back in the 90s where it kind of devolved and it was left up to the states to adopt con law or not. Uh, California does not have con law, but for instance, Michigan does. And what con law does is it says that if you and I have, if let's just, I have a legacy ambulatory service and I'm providing my service, taking people back and forth from, let's say, their home to the hospital. Well, the demand is too high. And here comes Rashik. Rashik has his, he leverages his contacts with Mercedes Benz and Deloitte, and he has a connected autonomous electric ambulatory vehicle. You will not just be able to easily deploy your business, your, your vehicle without the permit and without the, without the permission of this certificate of need. And so the certificate of need in, in, in a lot of ways would suggest that you do now have that you have agencies and you have governments that are regulating business in the transportation field or in, in this case, in, in the healthcare field. This permit program would be in the transportation field. And I think this kind of goes back to the discovery you had uh, when you started looking into mobility and certainly with me, too, that. When you are talking mobility, you are talking transportation, you are talking about infrastructure, you're talking about public rights of way, and all that goes through government and agencies. You bring up that example, and, and I'm not familiar in detail, but when, when you think about ambulatory, ambulatory care, mm. um, and let's just focus on non-emergency care for the moment, I think emergency is very specific and not something that yeah. anyone can kind of come in and pretend to do. So, um, but when you think about getting uh, someone that needs assistance to a doctor's office, there are limitations to what's available out there. Um, and, and, and so it, it is an opportunity, you know, for, for the various mobility companies to come in and to kind of provide additional support. In fact, there are um, programs in place by the right hailing companies working with hospitals or insurance companies to be able to provide that in areas uh, around the U.S. We need to be mindful of the fact that we have a baby booming population, a large part of the U.S. population that are heading towards the age of being senior citizens and will require more assistance and support. And we will have a very limited population of, of drivers that will be able to provide that support for them. And so the development, the further development of various modes of mobility, um, whether it's human driver or autonomous, will be necessary not only to get them to where they need from a from an assistance standpoint with you know healthcare doctor appointments and so forth but also in getting the the, the goods that are necessary for them when you think about groceries and other types yeah. of needs that they have it also brings up in light picture when you think about the investment advancement of technology is there actually a need to go and move around when things can come to you i mean there's a lot of development that's going on with telemedicine i mean um my kids were just sick last week and we just you know did video chat with the doctor and got what we needed versus going to the doctor's office. So that eliminated that. Now the prescription I had to go get, um, but maybe well, that'll change. You and, know? and I think that's actually some of the things that are being addressed. Um, I had uh, on the show, uh, Amanda Roraf, who's the managing, managing director of Planet M. 
and she kind of touches upon this stuff where the the state of Michigan is deploying services or you know they're you have companies partnering with the government and agencies and they're kind of helping out deploying on-demand services and one of which would be prescription I mean how great would that be for you I mean they're kind of already doing it with for you know at least in San Francisco for medicinal marijuana I oh, mean there's true. There, there's a, a couple of startups that have come oh. out there and really moved in in, in doing that so um, I think it's it's definitely an opportunity for getting prescriptions to folks and and I think what's key is and if I can take it one step further in finding ways of optimization if you have the information of knowing that a person is going to a doctor's office, the doctor gave a prescription and they're getting back to a vehicle that will take them home. Wouldn't it be awesome if the prescription's already there in the vehicle? So it's one less stop. Yep. So how do you how do you configure that? And I think that's where things start to merge and get blurry across the different areas of business. I mean, whoever thought that mobility and healthcare will like overlap each other. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, we're seeing that with the, the development of more digital technologies that what we as you know as society conceive as different verticals or different industries of business are definitely blurring and that even goes back to when we think about government um in a sense of they're also faced with the same challenges of how they're structured from an authority standpoint it's starting to become blurred because of the fact that the digital transformation that's happening within their own business is changing the way how they should be structured and the skill sets that they need to provide the services to their citizens so spot on with that. Like, I, I think that as more governments and agencies are collecting data, it would bode better knowing the fact that there were more. I'll, I'll use the generic term and under please listeners understand this would be I, I, I want this to be somewhat watered down, but data scientists, right? Or individuals who are more involved in, let's say, the hard sciences as opposed to uh, folks who would have majored in English or history or things of that nature, right? When you do have the composition of your own workforce that actually can process and understand this data better, I think that actually would be a, a, a tipping point in where perhaps these, these permit programs would not be as controversial anymore because then it's, it is then a matter of cooperatively sharing data for the better for the betterment of your society yeah it's it's a really great point and and, and the chime in, for me to chime in here for a moment is that data scientists are not you know it's not a majority of, of skill sets that we have right, right. Um, they're very few and far between and and they're also very expensive to get uh, what a lot of companies have started to realize is utilizing data scientists um, and engineers also and, and software engineers to be able to develop programs and platforms to be able to do the necessary analytics. Um, you know, government agencies, and, and I'm not suggesting that they should, you know, spend tons of, of taxpayer dollars in getting these scientists, but rather work with these various companies that perform the analytics for you. So if, great you, point, if, actually. If, you, if you set <laughs> if you set the framework with with you know the mobility companies to get the right data and have these, you know, uh, companies to come in and kind of do the necessary um, analytical work. And also an opportunity to, when we think about some of the security concerns, privacy concerns, and so forth, you can set uh, measures in place where privacy is 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 maintained. So you get anonymized output versus the raw data itself. Yep. So cities could then make the, the necessary decisions that need to make without necessarily having access to something that might be compromising 
that you know mobility companies have a concern with. Yeah, yeah. Um, but and so there are some you know there are some companies out there that are doing that today. When we think about micro mobility, I mean, there's Populous AI, there's Remix, there's Streetlight Data. These are three that you know many of the cities already use today that take a lot of the raw data and provide output. I just had the chance to hear Regina Clulo. I think yeah, Regina her, Clulo, yeah. Uh, at, at CoMotion LA, and uh, I briefly met her, and uh, I'm hoping to have her on the show. Yeah, um, she is. She's, uh, a, she's, a, she's a brilliant mind. She's a, a very smart uh, mind, actually. She's a personal friend of mine as well. Um, hint, hint. <laughs> hint, hint. <laughs> Um, no, no, no hinting. I, I'm not. I'm not suggesting um, one one way or another. I'm just saying that you know I, I've I've seen what she's been able to do, and, yeah. and she's she's a great individual. So, so when you're talking about um, all the different avenues that you know a, a a vendor to the government or or an agency could help manage the the the, the individuals and the companies who do have expertise and training in analytics data science, things of that nature. It reminds me of blockchain. Any thoughts on integrating blockchain into these conversations between private and public sector? I uh, don't think it's necessary yet. Really? Yeah. Why? I mean, the, the, the aspect of blockchain is, you know, developing a trust ledger without having a central point um, so that it can be distributed accordingly. I think it's the, the analytics that we need to do now is not that complex. We just need to be able to have the access to the right data and the collaboration between the various mobility companies and cities and having the right agencies to be able to develop the necessary analytics. I think there is consideration of bringing blockchain in the future, um, but I think we, we need to be mindful of not complicating an already complicated situation with more trends and buzzwords and other technologies that are emerging and focus on what we can do today. It's certainly a valid point. Um, I may argue also that if indeed blockchain does become uh, ubiquitous, then the idea of decentralization and greater levels of security, I think will just bode better for for these partnerships and specifically for long-term partnerships. Yeah, I mean, there there is a research out there in building trust frameworks. I mean, uh, Dr. Sandy, uh, Sandy Petlin from uh, MIT has done work on setting up this type of like black box where you have access and ownership of your own data and, you know, requests can be put in to get information that's necessary, but the output is, is just the output. It's not the actual data itself back to who's requesting it. Mm -hmm. So that puts more control back to the user. Um, it's a framework that he's built out and has worked well with the Estonian government um, mm. and looking to see how we can like replicate that elsewhere. So it's it's interesting research uh, if, you, if anybody uh, listening to this wants to look into. Say it uh, one more time. It's Dr. Uh, Sandy Lee. Sandy Petland. P-E-T-L-A-N-D. Okay. Uh, from MIT. Okay. And, I, and, and if, uh, don't quote me on this. I think it's called the uh, framework of trust or trust framework. Oh. And I think, I think that is, that's an important thing is we have gone from you know, a time period with a lot of social media and, and various apps out there where we say, sure, have my data. It's yes. fine. I mean, five years ago, everyone's like, here, take it all. We're free. Um, and then that's kind of shifted. I mean, you yeah. look at GDPR in that direction, what's going on here in the U.S. Uh, with a lot of the discussions on, you know, privacy, consumer privacy, CCPA. Exactly. And it's really kind of coming around and um, and it's not something that I think will go away, especially when you think about 
where trust comes in and how do you ensure that the information you get and the information you give is protected by trust. Yeah, right. We'll save that for another conversation, yes? Yep, absolutely. Rashik, thanks very much for being on the show and, and dropping knowledge and, and hopefully contributing to the conversations between private and public sector. Obviously, at Deloitte, you are at the center of that. You're, you have a great mind. Um, you're, it looks like you have some great colleagues, at least uh, in which the, the individuals that helped pen this paper. I think it's a great paper. Uh, listeners, again, I will put on the episode page a link to this white paper, as well as uh, I'll find that uh, Dr. Sandy Petlin uh, paper and post that on the episode page as well. Uh, again, if you want to uh, get in touch with Rashik, uh, visit him on Twitter, LinkedIn, and I will, again, put his contact information on the episode page. As we end every episode, cheers, prost, lachaim, kipis, nastravi, salud, kampai, mabruk, tutsins, gambe, yamas, nastarovie, to the customer experience. Thank you. Well, I hope you enjoyed that episode, listeners, and a big thank you to Mr. Rashik Zarif for being on the show. Don't forget, visit the episode page to see some of those links and some of those topics that we discussed, uh, including the white paper that was penned by Rashik. And also don't forget, share with us one of your recommended books so that we can add it to our 2020 reading list. Thanks for tuning in to Wisco Weekly. We'll be back next week. Tell your